Chapter Fifteen of the Mystery of the Locks by E. W. Howe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Fifteen A Shot at the Shadow. The regular patronage of the apron and password, like the attendance at a theater when reported by a friendly critic, was small but exceedingly respectable. A gentleman of uncertain age who answered to the name of Ponsonboy, and who professed to be a lawyer, usually occupied the head of the one long table which staggered on its feet in the dingy dining-room, and when his place was taken by a stranger, which happened innocently enough occasionally, Ponsonboy frowned so desperately that his companions were oppressed with the fear that they would be called upon to testify against him in court for violence. The minister, who occupied the seat next to Ponsonboy, and who was of uncertain age himself, could demonstrate to a certainty that the legal boarder was at least forty-five, but the legal boarder nevertheless had a great deal to say about the necessity which seemed to exist for the young men to take hold and rescue Davy's Bend from the reign of the Fossils, a term which was applied to most of the citizens of the town after the other epithets had been exhausted, and as but few of them knew what a fossil was, they hoped it was very bad, and used it a great deal. Ponsonboy was such a particular man that he could only be pleased in two ways, by accusing him of an intention to marry any stylish girl of twenty, or of an intention to remove to Ben City, which he was always threatening to do. "'It would be useless for me to deny that I have had flattering offers,' it was his custom to reply, when asked if there was anything new with reference to his contemplated change of residence. "'But I am deuced timid. I came here a poor boy, with a law book in one hand and an extra shirt in the other, and I don't want to make a change until I fully consider it. It was a matter of such grave importance that Ponsonboy had already considered it fifteen years, and regularly once a year during that time he had arranged to go, making a formal announcement to that effect to the small but select circle around the table, the members of which either expressed their regrets or agreed to be with him in a few months. But always, at the last moment, Ponsonboy discovered that the gentleman who had been making the flattering offers wanted to put too much responsibility on him, or something of that kind, whereupon the good lady on his left and the good gentleman on his right were happy again. It was true that the legal boarder came to Davy's Bend a poor boy, if a stout man of thirty without money or friends may be so referred to. It was also true that he was poor still, though he was no longer a boy. But Ponsonboy rid himself of this disagreeable truth, so far as his friends were concerned, by laying his misfortunes at the door of the town, as they all did. He was property poor, he said, and values had decreased so much of late years that he was barely able to pay his taxes although he really possessed nothing in the way of property except a tumble-down rookery on which there was a mortgage. 
but Ponsonboy, whose first name was Albert, appeared to be quite content with his genteel poverty, so long as he succeeded in creating an impression that he would be rich and distinguished, but for the wrong done him by that miserable impostor, Davies Bend. The good man on his right, the Reverend Walter Wilton, and pastor of the old stone church where Annie Benton was organist, was a bachelor, like Ponsonboy. But, like Ponsonboy again, he did not regard himself as a bachelor, but as a young man who had not yet had time to pick out a lady worthy of his affections. Close observers remarked that age was breaking out on good Mr. Wilton and Spots, like the measles in its earlier stages. Short gray hairs peeped out at the observer from his face, and seemed to be waving their arms to attract attention, but he kept them subdued by various arts so long that it was certain that sometime he would become old in a night. He walked well enough now, and looked well enough, but when he forgets his pretense of youth, then he will walk slowly down to breakfast some fine morning with a crook in his back and a palsy in his hand. When it was said of Reverend Walter Wilton that he was pious, the subject was exhausted. There was nothing more to say, unless you chose to elaborate on piety in general. He knew something of books, and read in them a great deal, but old Thompson Benton was in the habit of saying that if he ever had an original idea in his head, it was before he came to the bend as a mild menace to those whose affairs did not permit of so much indolent deference to the properties. The Reverend Wilton did not gossip himself, but he induced others to, by being quietly shocked at what they said, and regularly three times a day Ponsonboy and his assistant on the left laid a morsel before him which he inquired into minutely but with the air of a man who intended to speak to the erring parties, not as a gossip. Reverend Wilton never spoke a bad word against anyone, nor was he ever known to speak a good one, but he always gave those around him to understand by his critical indifference to whatever was in hand, that were he at liberty to desert his post and allow the people to fall headlong into the abyss out of which he kept them with the greatest difficulty, he would certainly show them how the affairs of men should be properly conducted. Too good for this world, but not good enough for the next, Reverend Wilton only existed, giving every sort of evidence that, were it not unclerical, he would swear at his salary, which was less than that of a good bricklayer, denounce his congregation for good and sufficient reasons, cheat his boarding-place, and hate his companions. But his trade being of an amiable nature, he was a polite nothing, with a great deal of time on his hands in which to criticize busy people, which he did without saying a word against them. Mrs. Whittle, the milliner, sat on Ponsonboy's left, a tall and solidly built lady of forty-five, who was so very good as to be disagreeable. The people dreaded to see her come near them, for her mission was certain to be one of charity, and Mrs. Whittle's heart was always bleeding for somebody. Summer and winter alike 
she annoyed the people by telling them of duties which were not duties at all. And finally she was generally accepted as the town nuisance, although Mrs. Whittle herself believed that she was quite popular because of the good she intended to accomplish, but which seemed to be impossible because of the selfishness of the people. Thompson Benton had given it out flat that if she ever came bothering around him, he would give her the real facts in the case, instead of putting his name on her subscription paper. But for some reason she kept away from him and never heard the real facts, whatever they were. She regarded old Thompson, however, as a mean man, and moaned about him a great deal, which he either never heard of or cared nothing about. Old Thompson was seldom seen at church on Sunday evening, therefore Mrs. Whittle felt quite sure that he was prowling around with the view of safe blowing, or something of that kind, and she never referred to him except to intimate that he was up to mischief of the most pronounced sort. A man who was not at church on Sunday evening, in the opinion of Mrs. Whittle, must be drunk in a saloon, or robbing somebody for where else could he be? Mrs. Whittle only recognized two classes of men, those who were in the churches and those who were in the saloons, and in her head, which was entirely too small for the size of her body, there was no suspicion of a middle ground. Those who craved the attention of Mrs. Whittle found it necessary to be conspicuous either as a saint or a sinner. Theoretically, Mrs. Whittle was a splendid woman, and certainly a bad woman in no particular, except that she carried her virtues to such an extent that the people disliked her, and felt ashamed of themselves for it, not feeling quite certain that they had a right to find fault with one who neglected not only her affairs, but her person, to teach others neatness and thrift and the virtues generally. If she accomplished no good, as old Thompson Benton stoutly asserted, it was certain she did some harm, for the people finally came to neglect affairs in which they would otherwise have taken a moderate interest because of their dislike of Mrs. Whittle. A great many others who were inclined to attend to their own affairs, which are always sufficient to occupy one's time, heaven knows, were badgered to such an extent by Mrs. Whittle that they joined her in various enterprises that resulted in nothing but to make their good intentions ridiculous, and finally there was a general and a sincere hope that blunt Thompson Benton would find opportunity to come to the rescue of the people. Three times a day this trio met, and three times each day it was satisfied with itself, and dissatisfied with Davy's Bend, as well as everything in it, including Alan Doris. This new occupant of the locks was generally popular with the people, but the hotel trio made the absurd mistake of supposing that they were the people. Therefore they talked of Doris as though he were generally hated and despised. They were indignant to begin with, because he did not covet the acquaintance of the only circle in the town worth cultivating. And as time wore on, and he still made no effort to know them, they could come to only one conclusion, that he was deserving of their severest denunciation. 
Could Thompson Benton have known of the pious conclusions to which they came concerning his child, and which she no more deserved than hundreds of other worthy women deserve the gossip to which they are always subjected, he would have walked in upon them and given the two men broken heads, and the woman the real facts in her case which he had been promising. But there is a destiny which protects us from an evil which is as common as sunshine, and Thompson Benton was not an exception to the rule. It was the custom of the hotel trio to come late to supper and remain late, greatly to the disgust of the cook and the man of all work, and surrounding the table in easy positions, they gossiped to their heart's content, at last wandering away to their respective homes, very well satisfied with one another, if with nothing else. It was after nine o'clock when they got away in the evening with which we have to do, and by the time Davy had eaten his own supper and put the room in order for the morning, it was ten. Hurriedly putting up a package of whatever was at hand for Tug, he was about starting out at the kitchen door when he met Mr. Whittle on the steps. He had somehow come into possession of a long and wicked-looking musket, which he brought in with him and put down near the door connecting the kitchen with the dining-room. Seeing Davy's look of surprise, he seated himself in Ponsonboy's place and explained, "'Poison has its advantages, for it does not bark when it bites, but it lacks range, and henceforth I carry a gun. How was Uncle Albert to-night?' Silas placed a plate of cold meat before his friend, and replied that Mr. Ponsonboy would be in a fine rage if he should hear himself referred to as Uncle Albert. "'Oh, would he?' Tug inquired, sighting at his companion precisely as he might have sighted along the barrel of his musket. "'That man is fifty years old, if he is a day, and don't let him attempt any of his giddy tricks with me. I wouldn't stand it. I know too much about him.' I have known Uncle Albert ever since he was old enough to marry, and I know enough to hang him, the old kicker. I have known him to abuse the postmaster for not giving him a letter with money in it, although he didn't expect one, and accuse him of stealing it, and whenever he spells a word wrong and gets caught at it, he goes around telling that he has found a typographical error in the dictionary. What did he say about me tonight? He said, I hope you won't believe that I think so, Davy apologized in advance, that you robbed the only client you ever had of a thousand dollars. Did he, though? Tug impudently inquired. Well, I'll give him half if he'll prove it, for I need the money. Uncle Albert hears what is said about me, and I hear what is said about him. If he'll make a date with me, I'll exchange stories with him, and he won't have any of the best of it either. The people sometimes talk about as good a man as I am, and even were I without faults, there are plenty of liars to invent stories, so you can imagine that they give it to Uncle Albert tolerable lively. Tug did not mingle with the people a great deal, but he knew about what they were saying 
and when talking to Silas he did not hesitate to quote them to substantiate any position he saw fit to take. He had a habit of putting on his hat on these occasions, and inviting Silas to accompany him out in the town to see the principal people, in order that they might own to what Tug had credited them with saying. But Silas always refused to go, not doubting that his friend's inventions were true, so it happened that Tug made out rather strong cases against his enemies. "'I can stand up with the most of them,' he said, with an ill humor to which hunger lent a zest, "'and them that beat me I can disgrace with their poor relations. Show me the man that can't be beat if you go at him right, and you may hang me with a thread. Them that are well behaved have shiftless relations.' and I'll get them drunk and cause them to hurrah for Uncle Bill or Aunt Samantha, or whoever it may be, in front of their fine houses. I pride myself on my meanness, and I'll not be tromped on. Let him that is without sin cast the first stone, and I'll not be stoned. You can bet on that if you want to. Tug proceeded with his meal in silence, until Silas said to him that Reverend Wilton was a good man. Silas had a habit of inducing Tug to abuse his enemies by praising them, and the ruse never failed. "'Well, don't he get paid for being good?' Tug replied, waving a kitchen fork in the air like a dagger. "'Ain't that his business? It's no more to his credit to say that he is good.' than to say that Silas Davy is a hotel handy-andy. If you say that he knows a good deal about books, I will say, so does Harry Hampton know a good deal about mending shoes, for it's his trade. Shut Hardy up in a room and pay him to post himself regarding certain old characters he cares nothing about, and pay him well, and in the course of years he will be able to speak of people, events, and words which you, having been busy all the time, will know nothing about. He ought to be good. It's his business. I always know what a preacher is going to say when he opens his mouth, for don't I know what he's hired to say? I don't like good men anyway, but a man who is paid to be good and expects me to admire him for it will find, well, I'll not do it, that's all. How's the old lady? There was a faint evidence that Tug was about to laugh at the thought of his divorced wife, and his cheeks puffed out as a preliminary, but he changed his mind at the last moment, and carefully sighted at Silas, as if intending to wing his reply like a bird from a trap. "'She is uncommonly well for her,' Silas said, looking meekly at his companion. "'She is almost gay.' "'Oh, the young thing! Is she?' Tug retorted. "'Do you know what she reminds me of? An old man in a dress trying to imitate a girl.' There was unutterable meanness in Mr. Whittle's last remark, and when he looked around the room with fierce dignity, he seemed to be wondering why anyone should continue to live in the face of his displeasure. "'I heard her say tonight, when I brought in a third lot of cakes, that you were the bane of her life, 
Silas said timidly, and dodging his head to one side, as if expecting Tug Whittle to jump at him for repeating the scandalous story. Although she says she is heartbroken, I notice she eats mighty well, for her. And I suppose Reverend Good and Uncle Alfred encouraged her, Tug replied. What good husbands bachelors imagine they would be, and what miserable old growlers they turn out. Before a man is married he takes a great deal of comfort to himself in thinking what a kind, indulgent husband and father he would be, and how different from other men, but they soon fall with a dull sickening thud to the level of the rest of us. It's easy enough to be a good husband in theory, and it's easy enough to be brave in theory, but when the theorists come down to actual business, they are like the rest of us. It's like an actor in a show. He wants to find a villain and punish him, and the villain appears about that time and makes no resistance and is beaten to great applause, finally shrinking away while the other fellow looks ferociously at him, but it is not that way in real life. The villain fights in real life, and usually whips. If I knew that the men I dislike would stand it peaceable, like the villains in a show, I'd beat them all to death. But as it is, I am a coward, like Ponsonboy, and you, and Armsby, and all the rest of them. Except Alan Doris. There's a man who'd fight. When I read in books about brave men, it makes me feel ashamed, until I remember that the men in actual life are not like those in the books. What did her ladyship say about Hector? Mrs. Whittle's first husband had been a certain Hector Harlem, with whose history Silas was very familiar from his association with Tug, so he answered, She wiped away a tear and regretted his death. She seemed greatly affected, for her. She can't possibly regret his death more than I do, Tug said. He appreciated her. I never did, and I am sorry she does not join Hector in glory, or wherever he is, for she is no earthly good in Davy's Bend. She told me once that he always called her his baby. There was no keeping it in now. The thought of his wife being called a baby was so absurd to Tug that he was about to laugh. His cheeks swelled out as though the laugh came up from below somewhere, and he found it necessary to swallow it, after which there was a faint smile on his face and a gurgle in his throat. When Mr. Whittle smiled, it was such an unusual proceeding that his scalp had a habit of crawling over toward his face, to take a look, which it did in this instance, and then went back to its old position at the top of his head. It was a dreadful laugh, but Silas was used to it and was not alarmed. "'That woman wants to be a man the worst way,' the old scoundrel went on to say. "'I hope it accounts for the circumstance that she never looks like a woman should. A white dress on a woman, a real woman, understand, not an imitation one, looks handsome, and I never see a girl dressed in white that I do not fall in love with her. But when the old lady puts it on, 
with a frill at her neck or any such trifling thing. I want to find a woodpile and an axe to cut off my feet. I don't know why anyone should want to be a man. I know what a man is, and I wonder at this strange ambition of the old lady. I never see a man that I don't want to spit on him. Ugh! He shrugged his shoulders in unutterable disgust, but soon modified his manner as Davy began talking of another matter. "'Barney Russell of Ben City was here today,' the little man said. "'He used to live in Davy's Bend. I suppose you remember him?' "'There's another man I don't like,' Mr. Whittle replied with a snort. "'He comes up here regularly once a month to crow over us "'and tell around that he has two overcoats, "'one for winter and another for spring. "'Some say he has seven canes,' a different one for every day of the week. But he ain't half the man Doris is, although he carries silk handkerchiefs with a red R in the corner. If I should leave Davy's Bend, I'd never come back, as he does, for I have done so many contemptible things here that I wouldn't want to be reminded of them by seeing the place again. I don't blame Barney, though, for having two overcoats. Tug continued thoughtfully. Next to two pairs of shoes, it's the greatest luxury a rich man can afford. I'd own two overcoats myself if I had the money. A man who has two overcoats and two pairs of shoes and uses a knife to cut his tobacco instead of biting it off like a pig is ready to die. There will be little left in the world for him to regret after he's gone. But to return to the serious business of life. It is usually on a Wednesday when the shadow appears. This is his night, and I'm looking for him. He turned his big eye toward the corner where he had left the musket, and seeing it was safe, resumed, I have never been of any use to a single human being in all my life but I intend to make myself useful to Alan Doris by shooting the shadow. Give me that gun. Silas went over to where the gun was standing and returned with it in his hand. Placing his finger about halfway up the barrel and following it with his great eye, Tug said, It is loaded to there. Thompson Benton trusted me for the ammunition, though he said he knew he would never get the money. I have a notion to pay him now for contrariness. Have you fifty cents about you? Silas carefully went through his pockets, as if he were not quite sure about it, but after a long examination replied that he hadn't a cent. Well, it's no great matter, though you ought to keep money about you. I am liable to need it. But if let alone by the shadow... Alan Doris will marry Annie Benton and become a happy man, which he has never been before. I don't know what he has been up to before he came here, and I don't care, for I like him, and I am going out now to get a shot at his enemy. Without further words he walked out, followed by Silas, who carefully locked the kitchen door and put the key in his pocket. Viewed at a distance, the pair looked like a man and a boy out hunting, 
the boy lagging behind to carry the game. It was a bad night, for which the bend was famous, and though it was not raining, there was so much moisture in the air from a recent rain that it occurred to Silas, as he went limping along towards the locks, for they walked in that direction, that if Tug should find the shadow and fire his gun at it, the discharge would precipitate another shower, for the prop under the water in the sky seemed to be very unsubstantial and shaky that night. It had been raining at intervals all day, and the two men floundered along in the mud until they reached the church which stood near Allan Doris's house, where Tug stopped a while to consider. Coming to a conclusion after some deliberation, he pulled two long boards up from the church steps, and giving the gun to Silas to hold, he carried them to the middle gable of the building, on the side looking towards the locks. Climbing up on the window sill, he placed one end of each board on the wall which surrounded the locks, and which was only a few feet from the church, and the other on the window sash, pulling the upper one down to aid the lower one in holding his weight, and allowing one end of each board to protrude into the church. Then climbing up and straddling one of the boards, he took his gun, and motioned his companion to follow. When Davy seated himself by the side of his friend, he found that the low gable would protect them from the rain, should it come on, and that from where they sat they commanded a view of Doris's window, the one above the porch where they had once seen the shadow appear, and in which a light now appeared. Silas felt certain that it was Tug's intention to wait there all night for a shot, and he made himself as comfortable as possible. Occasionally he fell into a light doze, but on coming out of it by losing his balance, he saw that Tug was still intently watching the window, with the musket in his hands ready for use. Two hours passed in this manner, when the patience of Silas was rewarded by seeing Tug crane his neck and look intently through the trees. Silas looked himself and saw a man's head slowly rising to the porch roof from below. It came up in full view, and then a part of the body was seen as the shadow climbed over the low railing. As near as Silas could make out, the man wormed himself around and finally stood upon the porch railing to look in at the top of the window, so that only a part of his head and none of his body could be seen from where the men were. Although he heard Tug cock the gun when the head first appeared, he seemed to be waiting for a larger mark to shoot at, for there was nothing to be seen except a part of a hat. Occasionally this would be withdrawn, but it would soon appear again, and remain motionless a long time, as though the wearer was intently gazing at something transpiring in the room which greatly interested him. Tug did not seem at all excited, as Silas was, but sat watching the shadow, as motionless as a stone. After a longer disappearance than usual, during which time Tug became very nervous, the hat came in view again and Silas said softly, 
Suppose it should disappear and never come back. Apparently Tug had not thought of this possibility, for he hurriedly threw the gun to his shoulder, aimed a moment, and fired. The report was tremendous and seemed to frighten Tug himself, for he hurriedly jumped down and softly raised the sash into position, replaced the boards on the steps, and set out toward the town. Reaching the vicinity of the hotel, he waited until Silas came up and said, "'Sleep in your own bed tonight. We must not be found together.' So saying, he disappeared, and Silas crept to his lonely room to wonder what Alan Doris would find when he went out to investigate the shooting. End of chapter 15 Recording by Roger Moline